Welcome to Season 2 of the Gamers Change Lives Podcast. In Season 1, we learned about entrepreneurs and others around the world who were creating jobs and opportunities through esports. The one common theme throughout the season was that it takes money to create jobs and change lives. But let's face it, money can be hard to find, especially in some parts of the world, maybe in your part of the world. But this season, we are going to share stories from esports entrepreneurs in emerging markets and showcase how they found funding they need to be successful. We're also going to talk to investors in Africa, Asia, India, who have invested in esports and highlight the challenges that those markets face. In addition, we're going to talk about sponsors who provide funding to teams, tournament organizers, and streamers. Join us on this journey for Season 2 of the Gamers Change Lives podcast, aptly titled, Follow the Money. And now your host, Tom Leonard. I'm Tom Leonard. I'm the host of the Gamers Change Lives podcast. When it comes to esports, I'm definitely not the expert. I'm more of an explorer. The goal of the podcast is to talk to esports entrepreneurs from around the world to learn about how esports can create jobs and maybe to inspire others to do just that. Our tagline is play games, create jobs, change lives. Now in season two, we're going to be talking with esports entrepreneurs and others talking about sponsorship, investment, and more. We're going to talk about how esports entrepreneurs businesses can make money because it takes money to create jobs. So we call the season follow the money. Today I'm honored to have Malf Mins. He's the managing director of, among other things, he is the managing director of Strive Sponsorship, which is just perfect for this um, this season. Welcome Malf. Thank you for having me, Tom. Uh, good to be here. So where are you speaking to us from? So I am speaking to you from southwest London in the UK. Got it. Got it. You, you, were, you were telling Reginald there that you're, you're, you're very close to a, uh, a football, a famous football stadium? Correct. I mean, depending which part of the world you're from, football or soccer, um, I'm almost equidistant between uh, Chelsea and Fulham. Um, football clubs, so um, a little closer to Fulham than Chelsea, but but both within walking distance. Got it, got it. Now I always brag that I'm right here in Burbank, and I'm in walking distance to Disney and Warner Brothers. But you you probably uh, in the sporting world, uh, that, that, that's probably a pretty good location. Although, yeah, for sure, there's been similar storylines in the world of Chelsea recently as probably Disney um, and and some new American ownership there. Actually, I think both clubs are owned by uh, by Americans now. No, that's one of the things that's interesting. We'll talk in a little bit about traditional sports and esports and the connections yeah. between them, because I think that's one of the great things about your background. You've been in both. But first, I want to talk a little bit about how did you get started into gaming and esports in particular? Was there a, sure. was there a PS1 involved? Uh, do you know what? There wasn't. Um, God, I'm going to show my age here, but I am a Commodore 64 and Amiga kind of generation um, of where I started my gaming journey. But um, in terms of esports specifically, you know, I came across the word esports and the concept of competitive gaming when I was on a flight um, about 15 years or so ago um, and as somebody that games casually myself it just intrigued me I watched a documentary about it and I I can't really recall the um, the name of the documentary now but it it heightened it into my you know kind of mind and every time I read about it from then on in the paper I was drawn to the the conversation and then 2015 I started to see 
um, a greater gravity of discussion around the area. Um, and that was for me then the point start to dig deeper um, and understand if it had reached a level of maturity whereby my own knowledge and skills might be able to offer value to the industry. And so I then spent about just under 12 months researching um, the ecosystem and how things um, you know, sat at that time before I started to proffer my opinion and, and do client work um, in 2016. Now, before that, then, you were doing sponsorship work in traditional sports? Correct. Yeah, I've worked in traditional sports for, uh, and entertainment, I should say, across music and film um, for about 19 years now. So, um, yeah, I think that's how you were doing a lot of uh, racing, bicycle um, racing. I've done, I've done a, a variety of things. I've worked in soccer. I've worked in rugby. I've worked in sailing. Um, I've worked in Formula One. I've worked in cycling, as you say, Tour de France um, kind of side of things. I've worked across a whole plethora of different sports and a, a few Hollywood movies, probably the most famous, The Holiday with Cameron Diaz and Jack Black. All kinds of, all kinds of fun things. That's, that's great. That, that, yeah. uh, that is, no, that, it's always uh, makes it a little more interesting. What other kinds of things would you say are similar between traditional sports and esports when it comes to the sponsorship side? Yeah, um, ultimately, I think sometimes people overcomplicate sponsorship. Um, the fundamental pillars um, of what is important is true in sport as it is in esports, as it is actually in, in anything. Um, it really comes down to objectives. What are the brands trying to achieve? Ultimately, it's a marketing platform, right? So understanding what they're trying to achieve, that is as similarly important in sports as it is in esports. Secondly is the brand. What does it stand for? You know, um, what's its identity? Understanding that in esports is as important as it is in sports. And fundamentally, understanding what the audience is as well. Um, you know, like I say, it's a marketing platform and it's important to understand who you are targeting um, and, you know, what types of audience. I think often people, when I see them talk about audience, they talk about it as a single entity when really it's multifaceted. Um, and I think that's really crucial to understand when you're looking to monetize your audience is while you may have even similar demographics, their behaviors can be quite different. And actually, you may find that some elements of your audience have no value um, to sponsors, while other elements of your audience have great value. Now, they may not be the biggest parts of your audience. And so quite often, they're not spoken about. A lot of people default to trying to pump out big numbers because they think that's what brands want to hear. Um, but essentially, the principles of each are the same. You're just dealing with um, differing details. No, I think that's that's a good way to look at it, because a lot of times here on the podcast, we're talking to people from around the world, people um, you know, in emerging markets. And obviously, London does not qualify as an emerging market there. But I think the things that you're talking about are universal when it comes to sponsorship. So this, the same kinds of things that that you're talking about, you know, knowing the, your audience and so on. It's the same thing in Ghana, same thing in India, same thing in, in Latin America and same thing in, in the United States. And it's just yeah. pretty universal. It is. It is for sure. And I think the only thing I'd say is the way that 
people buy is sometimes quite different. So um, the way I say that, so, so nothing there that I've said is, and, and this does kind of differ a little bit from geography, those principles between sport and esports are similar, but sometimes people put more value on an element than they might do in another country. So in the US, scale of audience um, has more value on the buyer side than it does, let's say, in the UK, where it's not necessarily about scale. It's more about um, the level of traction you have with that audience. And I'd say there's even differences within Europe. You know, often scale Italy um, the brand reputation of who you may sponsor is really important. In Italy, a lot of business is done on relationships. And so how a brand is perceived um, is really valuable to them. It's probably why they've got lots of luxury brands like, you know, Ferrari, let's say that the prestige that a brand brings is really vital in purchase decisions. No, I, I think that's really an interesting way to look at it. It's like, so do you find that um, esports is a good way to build prestige um i mean i think i think it prestige is a is a funny word i think prestige if you look at it is really talking about luxury um and i guess people with higher disposable incomes traditionally esports has been targeted at a younger demographic or should i say it's not been targeted at has been engaged um with by a younger demographic and this is a generalization but that younger demographic's disposable income hasn't been uh, as bigger as an older demographic. And that's purely, you know, an output of age and them being earlier in their careers in general. Now, obviously, there are anomalies in all of this. Um, but I think luxury brands where they've looked to get involved, if you look at, I don't know, Louis Vuitton and League of Legends and Tiffany's more recently, I think some of those aren't about trying to monetize those relationships right now. What they're trying to do is build um, brand image and associations, try and build those relationships over a longer term to monetize those, monetize those relationships when those people get older. That said, esports is maturing too, and its demographic and its audience is changing. It's, it's skewing older than it was you know, five, six years ago. Some of that's the nature of the, you know, gamers and, and people that have been following esports are getting older. And some of it's a case of just actually the passion point of esports, especially with COVID as a catalyst to accelerating its growth, is now reaching a broader audience and has started to, to attract, if you like, um, a more casual watching audience who may not play but consume it as an entertainment product. So who are the typical esports sponsors, would you say, if there is, I, if there is yeah. such a thing? I to be honest, I don't think there is such a thing. I think um, there are certain categories maybe that have been more prevalent than others. Um, and you always hear about the delineation between uh, endemic and non-endemic sponsors. And look, that's, you know, if we, if we take endemic and non-endemic, whether you're talking about esports or cycling, let's say um, the way that those you know sports mature is very similar endemic brands are always the first to market because they're part of the industry and they see it and their products are very much front and center and they understand the value of what it is as that industry matures and, and broadens that's when you start seeing non-endemic and they're more interested in if you like 
audience at scale and they start to 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 really invest more from a brand standpoint than than always a product standpoint um i think in terms again in terms of early adopters you'll often find consumer goods companies you know you look at red bull you look at coke you look at those kind of sides they're often engaging with younger audiences in music in film in fashion in other areas and so they're constantly looking at cultural changes so they're often earlier to market so we've seen that in esports later to market are more your financial services brands um your bigger more i guess traditional brands uh, maybe a little surprising has been how early to market some of the luxury fashion brands have been but i think i was going to ask you about that because like because you see them um showing up in some of the most unlikely places and it's just like I, i'm just really really convinced that someone who's watching uh league of legends is not out there buying a lamborghini but they are seeing lamborghini being promoted and i was just kind of curious what your take was on why why someone like that would be out there spending money to the esports market do you know what it is? I think it's. I think there have been a few early adopters. Um, so you know, Louis Vuitton. You know, to an extent, Gucci has been doing quite a lot in gaming, um, not so much on the esports side. And I think what that does is then within that luxury industry, it starts a conversation um, about, I guess, a new area that that if you've got one or two big brands involved makes their peers start to sit up and look and examine what they may do. So I should think that Louis Vuitton and Gucci have been catalysts to the broader luxury interest that we've seen and that there's maybe been a little bit of a bleed, if you like, from the gaming um, sector into the esports sector. Um, because if you look at it, luxury isn't too involved in sports, certainly not at the scale and with the prominence that it has been in esports. That's true. That's true. true. Yeah. And I think, as I said, these are real brand. They're they're really trying to brand build, um, you know, for for future opportunities. But also, I think certainly digital fashion has been at the forefront of monetizing um, digital goods um, and that being a new category for them. And look, we're seeing that all the time with, you know, director avatar propositions and any, everything we've seen with NFTs. And I think that whole category is far more aware of the opportunities for them as a company, let alone them as a sponsor. And so that's why we've seen a lot, you know, a lot more prevalent um, luxury brands than maybe we have in other categories. We've yet to see, if you like, Unilever or, or you know, people like that start to develop their own, you know, digital goods whilst we have seen them doing sponsorship and other sorts of things. You know, they're, they're not really looking at it from a, a revenue generation standpoint like luxury goods are. One of the things that I found in doing a little bit of research for, for our discussion today was went out, uh, went, uh, go out on the, the Strive sponsorship webpage you have amazing insights your insight section there it's just like there's i i i'm like i'm going to always send people over there when you're looking for esports statistics go look at all the stuff that you guys have there because it's, it's really good collection really up to date too one of the things that i did see in one of the reports there was talking about how about 60 percent of the revenue in esports it was quoted 60 something percent is sponsorship but that a lot of esports companies are trying to get into, you know, trying to diversify that. And they're talking about loyalty programs, merchandise, uh, education, training sort of things. Yeah. It, do you, 
do you see, uh, so that was out of the report. Is that how you see uh, your experience in real life? Yeah, absolutely. And it, it's funny you mentioned that. That's that's come from a recent report. You know what? This is gonna this is gonna sound a bit big headed and it's not meant to, but back in 2016, 2017, this was something I was saying to a lot of esports clients at the time. There was a big focus, and understandably so, on sponsorship. Basically, a lot of people within esports, you know, held their hands up and said, Look, we are not sponsorship and commercial experts we are esports and gaming experts but we recognize we need to bring in revenue and what they did was they looked at where does sport make its money and what they found was that it was predominantly media rights and sponsorship now media rights are complicated in esports for the reasons that we know about well who actually owns those you know can you get a share of those and that does differ to sports because of the nature of how competition structured depending on which esports titles you look at and so sponsorship was the next area um, that they arrived at um, and i think the other thing was a lot of people when they think about oh how do i make money sponsorship is an obvious Um, first step even if they don't know much about it they're aware of the concept the challenge that they've got is they also started to as well as looking to sport as they got funding they started to hire people in from sport and what we tended to find was not you know the people from sport didn't really know a lot about esports and gaming but that wasn't why they were there they were being brought in more for their skill set than their knowledge base and essentially they were trying to learn and earn that knowledge uh, whilst they were within the team and what they brought with them was a set of tools and approaches like i said that that they knew from sport and so really what esports is experiencing now you know 5 6 years on from when i was talking about it are the same problems that sport has. So sport has a certain number of revenue streams that it's constantly trying to squeeze more revenue from, more blood from the stone. And esports has now reached that too. You know, initially with sponsorship, they were getting what I would call um, displacement spend. It was essentially, okay, I'm going to, instead of spending, you know, I know a million dollars on this sponsorship, I'm going to spend 200 thousand dollars on an esports sponsorship because uh, you know i can get maybe more return on investment because it's a cheaper buy but as the market matured and more competition came in um the costs you know started to get higher equally the level of knowledge started to get higher and some people i think that that wanted to get in the market from you know being there first or had fear of missing out or didn't to be honest completely understand it and maybe weren't getting the best advice um, invested into it and you know there's a number certainly a number of investments that that weren't done well and maybe didn't realize the value not because they weren't necessarily valuable opportunities but because those deals weren't structured correctly um and what that now leaves them with is they've not got market saturation but it's a lot harder to get their sponsorship dollars because it's not a new thing now and people know more about it and so you know their unique selling point has somewhat diminished and what that means is that they're now needing to you know diversify um where they get their revenue from same issue that sport has and i think for me what they really need to do is understand that their audience um they need to look at them in a different way they need to look at them as individuals that they connect to through their passion of esports or gaming or both you know if they've got influences and they're streaming content they're potentially working across both 
And what they really need to do is understand what do they do outside of watching esports and gaming? Do they go on holidays? You know, do they drive a car? Do they, whatever it may be, they need to understand them as consumers um, and really aggregate that and understand at scale what else are they doing? And then really link that to who they are as a brand to start building propositions that they can sell to their audience that also fit, you know, with their brand. I can give you an example. There's, a, there's an influencer um, group in the UK called The Sidemen. They do a lot of content around soccer. Um, and, you know, frictionless commerce and travel is important for their audience because they're a young audience that like to travel and they like to, you know, just be able to get things done quickly. Now, they've created their own payment card that, you know, you don't get charged on when you are when you spend abroad, that you can charge up with funds that doesn't have stupid amounts, you know, of interest to pay back. So they've looked at their audience, understand that they like to travel, understand that they don't want to get hit with high payments, understand that they only want to load enough credit on there that they can afford. They've looked at them as consumers and then developed a product and partnered with a third party who can provide those card services to to deliver that and then support promotionally. That, to me, makes sense. Now, there's a number of things you have to do to get that aligned, but the potential revenue that that could generate if you get that right um, is really valuable. Yeah, we were were talking to uh, Sadiq in uh, the Ivory Coast a couple weeks ago, and his his group, um, whose name escapes me right (laughs) at the moment, but but his gaming group just launched a prepaid card. Right. in Africa, because and uh, it, it just just doing exactly what it is that you're describing. Do you find that the the audience is different from um, for men versus women? Do you think that that sponsors um, look at them differently and talk to them differently, or do they pretty much talk to them the same in the esports world? I mean, I think they, I think it's it's dangerous to um, to separate purely by gender. Um, I think that's one way you can look at it. But I think really you've, you've got to look at it in a more sophisticated manner and look at how people consume. And sure, you know, what gender they are plays into that to a degree. I think to answer your question specifically, I think people do look at it differently. I mean, from an esports standpoint, from most of the reports you'll read, you know, it more heavily skews male to female, whereas gaming is certainly a more even spread. And there's a lot of theories around, you know, why esports is more attractive to men than women. Actually, if you look at Olympic sport, it's quite similar um, if you look at how men consume Olympics versus women, so men are really interested in winning and losing. So who who wins the medals, who doesn't? That's the that's the driver for why people watch Olympics if you're male. Female are much more interested in the stories behind the athletes. Who are they? How did they get here? What adversity have they got over? That sort of thing is what draws them into their Olympic consumption. And I think if you're an esports team or league or whatever that's trying to build your audience, don't just look purely at gender, look at the drivers behind consumption. And that equally is true of brands that are trying to reach those audiences. It's not about just having, and and unfortunately, this is quite linear thinking, oh, we need a women's team. You know, having a winning women's team is not purely going to solve not having a strong female audience. It might be a factor that helps 
But in in and of its own, you know, it's not going to be a solution. Yes, it's good to have female role models. I'm not saying it's not. But actually, it's also about the way you communicate um, and, and the way you tell the stories that is going to help um, really engage that broader audience. No, what you keep saying is is telling stories, telling stories, and that that's great. That's, so much of it is is uh, is that's what what all marketers are doing out there. You're talking also. I've heard you talk about brands versus rights holders. Yeah, could you describe what the difference are is between those two? Okay, so so very simply, rights holders. I would break down into teams, leagues, federations broadcasters and governing bodies they're essentially people that are trying to attract investment be that through sponsorship or anything else they own commercial rights that they are trying to monetize in some way brands are one of the ways that they monetize they're the people that invest their money into rights holders essentially rights holders own the relationship with the audience and brands are paying to reach that audience that they have via an association with the rights holder. Got it. Got it. So they're both, in most cases, they're both trying to do the same thing to reach, reach out to that audience. They're both trying to reach the audience, but rights holders own the relationships and brands are paying the rights holders to do it. So let's give an esports example. G2 yes. is a rights holder. Blast you know, is a rights holder. Riot is a rights holder. They all own relationships with an audience. They all have direct um, ways to engage with that audience. Pringles or Coca-Cola or Red Bull are brands also trying to reach that audience, but they pay G2, Riot, Blast, whoever it may be, for an association in order that they can reach the audience because they're the ones that own, you know, their own fan relationships. Yes, and one of the things that we always hear, keep hearing is it that sets esports apart from traditional sports is the fact that you have publishers who own the IP out there. I mean, no one owns baseball, no one owns football, whatever flavor uh, exactly out there. So there's there's no one that that that, you, that comes in with with such a different um, uh, viewpoint and power position into the um, that you have to. Uh, have to work. Yeah. And look, that differs by game title, right? Because if you're dealing with Riot and Activision, that I would call a more centralized approach where they're very active in their ecosystems um, compared to somebody, you know, like a Valve, who's, you know, more laissez-faire and, you know, you've got more third-party event organizers. There's, you know, there's, there's very different um kind of rules of engagement and look there are challenges to having um publishers involved and as you say they obviously own the ip and and so essentially can govern everything but that equally there are also benefits you know they are great consumer businesses in their own right so the potential for the access that they can give you by you know working with them is is potentially a lot stronger than working with you know traditional sports rights holders who you know perish the thought are often not as sophisticated, I don't think, as a consumer business like Araya or Activision or Valve might be. No, I think that I think that's true. I think you, one could point to a lot of examples of um, of that happening. I mean, your experience with um, across different industries, especially film, music, 
um, entertainment. Because one of the things I always go back to is for large part, esports is entertainment. Esports is playing for an audience. And so there has to be that, that feeling of entertainment out there. You know, when you're talking about telling stories or whatever, do you think film entertainment, movie, TV, and, um, music, um, marketing connect well with esports? Do you think that there's uh, kind of a disconnect there, a missed opportunity? Um, I think there's a certainly early on there was some deals done. I think uh, the last Born film um, they they did some advertising through some of the Face It uh, live events in Europe, and I know Warner Brothers have done some stuff as well. I think in short, yeah, there's a great opportunity to tap into music marketing and film marketing budgets um, to try and open those up. Um, to you know, via esports teams and competitions, um, and and them to become platforms to you know essentially connect to the audience to get you know sell more cinema tickets or you know streaming services or whatever it may be. Um, I think they they aren't they haven't traditionally been big sponsors because if you think that if the nature of a music album or of a film. They have they have super quick turnover cycles of when they're promoting those films and sponsorships. You tend to need to have a longer relationship to get value from. As a consequence, what you see in film and music is what we would term more media buying than sponsorship. So media buying at its purest is buying adverts rather than, if you like, buying a relationship. So I think where the opportunity for esports is, is essentially potentially influencer deals. If you've got an esports team and you've got, you know, content deals with your influencer team, I think there's an opportunity. If you're a tournament, I think it's, you know, um, pre-rolls and uh, and that sort of stuff. It's it's an advertising proposition rather than a sponsorship proposition. The thing I'd say, though, as well, is advertising budgets tend to be bigger than sponsorship budgets and they're spent far more frequently so that is, a, for me, an undertapped revenue stream. And I think often misunderstood. A lot of, a lot of stuff is sold as sponsorship when actually it's advertising. Um, and what's key to understand is in big businesses, the, the person that has the advertising budget is different to the person that has the sponsorship budget. And quite often they don't know one another in big organizations. Um, and I think the third element that's undertapped you know, if we're talking about sponsorship, we've just talked about advertising, is corporate social responsibility. So certainly within the UK, um, that is pre-tax spend. What I mean by that is if you spend money on corporate social responsibility, you're able to spend revenue that has yet to be taxed. So as a corporation, you're you're saving about 30%. It's a more efficient spend, whereas marketing spend is after-tax spend. Now, if you look at sports, um, and again, I'm going to use an, uh, an, an EPL example here, but I'm sure it's true of, you know, American sport and whatever else as well, is there's a lot of using sports in the community. It might be about life skills. How can we teach better communication, better team working, um, you know, resilience, overcoming adversity? All of those things can be extrapolated and and esports could be inserted within that and the same things done. A couple of years ago I spoke to City Football Group who own Manchester City and 
you know, New York City and a number of other, you know, clubs around the world. Obviously, they've got to deal with FaZe Clan over in the States. Um, and we talked a lot to them about how they could use esports to build connections with local communities where actually they could reach people that have an overlap with football fans, but equally who are completely different and they could broaden their brand relevance. So yeah, I think there are there are three different options there and certainly CSR and um, advertising are under tapped. Now, I really like what you're talking about, the difference between advertising and sponsorship, because it's, it is a subtle difference to people who have not been in the business, but, but on the inside, you're right. I'm not over here at Warner Brothers where I was working. It was like, if you're going to do sponsorship, you're talking to a marketing person. If you're talking about advertising, you're talking to someone else. And that yeah. the advertising person has tons more money than the marketing person. It's just like the, the money that is spent on advertising, particularly in an international market for on the theatrical side is just unbelievable. Oh, for sure. If and quite get- often it's agency spend rather than brand spend. So in, in advertising agencies, you know, big global media agencies are often controlling the spend. Yes. We were look, working with, uh, I think Omnicon. Yeah. Was that, yeah. was, 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 they may still be global. at Warner Brothers. I don't know, but, but yeah, we would, that's who we would work with on, um, on any kind of advertising spend. And actually there's, I think one of the things, um, there's probably an opportunity to, for, for, people to get more familiar with agencies like you're describing, but also to be a resource for agencies to learn more about esports. because I will bet uh, that there are lots of, of agencies out there that are always looking for more ways to spend the client's money, which is their, their role. And esports may be an untapped part of that. One of the things I wanted to talk about is let's say in our audience, we have a lot of people who are out there who are looking for sponsorship. They're, they're either teams, they're tournament organizers, and some of them are going to be, you know, little tiny, you know, hey, you know, we need we need $100 for this weekend's uh, prize pool sort of thing. And others are going to be a little bit larger. And, of course, your background is, is on the certainly the large things. But one of the things that caught my eye recently is I believe that Anubis in, uh, in Egypt signed a deal with uh, Mercedes-Benz. And mm-hmm. it's like, okay, so some people are thinking big and, and making it pay off. What would how, how what would you say to someone at uh, an esports enterprise um, that's looking for a sponsorship? What's the best way to find a sponsor? So I think the best place is probably to start with approach. If I look at the common um, problems, uh, I say problems or the common approaches I see from if you like, um, smaller or less developed teams in how they approach sponsorship. The first thing I say, I'd say is the way that they go about it is wrong. The first conversation with a brand, you know, with a, um, once you've, I guess, let me start. You need to start with looking at who is our audience. Look at yourself to start with. Who is your audience? You know, get an understanding of that. And look, I understand that costs money. Um, so, you know, how can you do it cheaper? And some of it's just looking at analytics of your own social channels. Some of it might be putting out a simple questionnaire, you know, that's free to do and you just get responses to, to just understand, you know, who are people, how old are they, what are their annual incomes, just basic information. Um, you also need to be clear on who you are as a brand. And I mean, you know, what is your objective? What are you trying to do? And don't try and say things that you think other people will want to hear. Really, what are your objectives? Where are you trying to go? What's your vision um, to can do you, that? 
sorry to interrupt you. Can you repeat that? That is really, really important. Did yeah. Not, I, not say what, what you think the other, what the, just what the other person wants. Yeah. Don't, don't, you know, when you're setting your objectives, let's say you're an esports team, what is your vision? What is your ultimate purpose? You know, being very clear on what you're trying to achieve. And that needs to be true for you. Don't just say what other people you think other people want. People will see through that really quickly. You need, you need to really be behind it and believe in it. And if you have that vision and then you have some objectives that support that, it's quite a good base to start. I'll give you, I'm going to go back to a cycling example. And I do this because Team Sky were a, a Tour de France cycling team. Um, we created that from nothing. <clears throat> now, so we had nothing to sell, right? But what we did have to sell was a vision. And what our vision was, was um, UK, Britain had never had a winner of the Tour de France in the 104 year history. Um, and so our vision as a British team was we want to win the Tour de France within five years with a British rider. You know, that was our objective. And then we had that was what we called our performance objective. And, and I think there's an important distinction here. That is what we wanted to do in competition. We also had what we termed legacy objectives. How are we going to influence the culture of cycling within our country? Not just about winning, but actually about feeling. And so we had another objective was we wanted to inspire a million more people to ride their bikes regularly. So on the one hand, we had this performance objective. And on the other, we had this more human cultural objective. Now, that was our vision. We hadn't done it, but that's what we were shooting for. Um, and so when we go and talk to brands, we were like, look, our ambition is to do this. You know, this is what we're trying to achieve and everything we're going to calibrate is to try and achieve these two objectives. You know, we want to not just win and change history, but we want to have a positive impact on the country around us. And everything we're going to do is going to be calibrated towards that. Is that something you want to be part of? Is that a journey you want to go on? Is that, you know, we aim to achieve that? Is that something you want to be able to shout about that you're contributing to? And hopefully in five years time have claimed part of the success in driving because that's then a complete shift in performance success as well as, you know, culture. Everybody loves a winner, but equally everybody loves somebody who does something that has a positive impact. Um, and, you know, we got global brands on board on the basis of we love that vision. We want to be part of that. And we can see that the other people you've got involved are, are you know, great brands as well. We want to, you know, we want to be part of that family. So I think going back to your question, don't worry if you're if you're small and starting out. Have a vision, have something that backs it up and then sell the story. But to do that, you need to be clear on your objectives. You need to be clear on what your brand stands for. You know, we talked about luxury earlier. You luxury, are you more mainstream? You know, what, what's your brand identity? Um, so objectives, brands, and who, who are you currently talking to and who do you want to talk to? So that, that for me is foundational. You need to understand that before you go and talk to anybody. Second thing you need to do is the first conversation with, with a brand should not be about you. It should be about them. Um, I call it the watch salesman. I get it all the time with, you know, you'll get a team coming to you saying, this is me. This is what we've won. 
here's some generic esports data that is true of the industry, but probably isn't true of me as a team because the industry's you know far bigger than just me as a team. But I'm just using all these business numbers because I think it will impress you. Um, and you know, here's what I've got to sell. What do you want? You know, that for me is a watch salesman. Brands get so many approaches. You're leaving them to do the work. You're leaving them to work out why would I want to associate with you? They don't have time for that. Um, you know, they're not inclined to do that. The first conversation should be, hey, I don't know, Mercedes Benz, talk to me about who are you trying to reach? You know, what are the problems you're trying to solve? Oh, you're, you're really struggling to reach this certain demographic or you've noticed that there's an audience that's underserved that has a real interest in esports or whatever. OK, talk to me about that. Talk to me about the issues you're having with that. Talk to me about your brand. What do you stand for? OK, you stand for affordable luxury or you stand for, you know, high technology or you stand for you know innovation or whatever it may be talk to me about that okay i'm going to go away and work through how i might be able to help you solve those problems or meet your objectives and you don't need to solve this isn't about solving everything for them but that's the lens you then need to apply to yourself saying okay if they're trying to do this how might i help them in part do that now the answer might be you know what, I don't think I can help them, in which case you're going to save yourself time and, and heartache and them time, and then you move on to your next prospect. But it might be, hey, you know what, I think we can really help them in the innovation space because we're creating this new way to you know, improve our team and our players, and I think we could really benefit from X, Y, you know, and our setup or whatever it might be. I don't know, but um, I'm going to go back to Mercedes Benz. Go. It was really interesting to talk about that. Do you know what? There's a piece here where I think we can help. You talked about a younger audience. Well, this is the audience we talk to. You talked about innovation being part of your brand. Well, this is what we're trying to do in the innovation space, and this is how you know, the help we're looking for. And maybe this is the benefit you could bring that gives us a natural storytelling. Again, it comes back to storytelling, a natural area that we can talk about, about how we're working together. Because that is a key difference between advertising and sponsorship. Advertising is interruptive. You are watching and consuming something and advertising is trying to steal your attention away from that. Sponsorship is part of the fabric of what you're interested in. It should be adding value to the experience or solving a problem. So sponsorship in that aspect should be, this is how we're helping the team become more innovative. This is how we're helping performance. We're using our expertise in you know human performance in i don't know it might be in mercedes-benz how you're sat and how that optimizes performance as a driver might be how you're sat at your computer and how that optimizes performance you know over when you're sat there for a lot of hours to prevent fatigue and therefore enable you to respond quicker to stuff you know there's i'm just picking that as an example all, the, all, all, all kinds of great things there what i really like hearing you talk about is when you mentioned the person looking for the sponsorship is putting the, the, the work back on the brand. And that's exactly what we heard from Luca Tacconi, with, with, uh, who's Red Bull. He he's works in uh, Red Bull, South Africa. And he was talking about that streamers. Streamers will come to him for Red Bull money. He said, and yeah. so much of the time, it's he's, um, yeah, I'm just repeating what he said, but he's, he's like, um, they come to him and they say, I think with your money, I can become really, really big. And it's putting the, the the work on Red Bull to give him the money and then to help him become big, which is just the opposite. And just just like you're describing there, it's like what works for him is when, when someone comes and they've already done their homework, 
They yeah. know what they have to offer and they know how that offer fits within Red Bull. Can you talk a little bit about time frame? Because a lot of times it's like, well, we've, you know, we've got a big event coming up this weekend that we can send <laughs> someone to Australia if we get some money. So we need a sponsorship by Saturday. So, which, you know, I mean, there's a lot of people that could fall. And, and a lot of good people have fallen that, that category. I'm not pointing anywhere. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, no, you make a good but on, on a time frame, what's, what's the best way to approach sponsorship? From yeah, you make a good point. And do you know what? Time frame is something I was going to go on to talk about, but I didn't want to, didn't want to talk too long on that point. But um, if you think about it, so if you think about budget cycles, so in general, um, brands, so, you know, potential sponsors, they tend to have three different um, budget cycles, depending on the company. So the most common one is a financial year will work April um, to March the following year. Um, and then some people work on a budget cycle of calendar year, i.e., you know, their new budget starts at January 1 rather than, you know, April 5. And then you've got a few, and this is quite popular with American businesses, that will work July through to June. Um, will be their budget cycles. Now, the reason I tell you that is if you know that those are the budget cycles, the planning for that budget happens beforehand. So if we're looking at, you know, the most common one, the April to March financial year, generally people start planning activity for the following year around September, October time. They're starting to go, right okay, now, right now. yeah, exactly. I need to start looking at what am I going to do next year and how much money do I need for that? Because essentially they have to put business plans together to then bid for that budget quite often. And even if not bid for it, they certainly got to plan it. And that all needs to get signed off. Now, in reality, that tends to get signed off in the new year. You know, February, March time is when stuff gets signed off. And then what they have is they're like, right, I know what my activity is going to be and I know I've got the budget against that. Now, what they will also have is a contingency, um, but contingencies are never big enough um, because there's always unplanned activity or things go over budget. So to your point, Tom, if somebody comes to you and says, whether it's next week or next month, I've got this thing, you know, do you want to sponsor it? Really what you're asking them is, have you got anything in your contingency budget that you can put to this? Now, contingency will always be small. And it will always be even more thought after than planned budget. So to your point, you need to be thinking about next year's events now. And you need to be going and talking to brands about the opportunities next year, about next year, not next month, um, because they just won't have the money available. Because it's not just about having the money. It's also about having the time. If they've got all this other activity planned in even if they can flip you five thousand dollars or a hundred dollars or whatever it is they might not have time to get value back from that because they're too busy with other planned activities they've got going on um so so yeah you need to plan ahead rather than just thinking god i need to go there last thing and and the other thing i'd say is if you are saying um oh, I've got something sponsored this weekend or next month, what you end up doing as well is undervaluing yourself because you're so desperate to get cash in that you end up just asking for a minimal amount. It's then very hard to go back and say, oh, yeah, can you sponsor this event next month? I uh, can do it for 500 bucks. 
if you want to sponsor it next year, it's 5,000 bucks. And then you go, okay, well, what's the difference between this year and next year? Oh, nothing other than I'm really desperate because I haven't got any sponsors in. Um, so, yeah, you've got to be really careful about actually killing your value for future years. Yes. And one of the things I, I always tell people is, uh, I mean, some of the best advice is look for a sponsor when you don't need a sponsor. Yeah. Start, start working on that on that um, relationship. And in creating that relationship, I think one of the things that people in esports have an advantage of that maybe some other people don't is you have some really exciting events that you can use as a calling card for what it is that you're doing. So especially if there's a local local uh, potential sponsor, it's like the next esports event, live event that you have that you can invite them and their and their son, their daughter to come and be VIP guests here, even if they haven't sent you any money yet. What does it cost? Those three seats cost you. You know, but it's just in esports and in gaming, really, it's just such an advantage to, you know, to have such an exciting thing to be working about. I could keep talking here with you, all kinds of great things. But one thing I did want to talk about here before we have to wrap up is the Olympics. You mentioned the Olympics. Should the Olympics be, um, should esports be part of the Olympics? Why or why not? Um, should esports be? It depends who you're asking. I think the Olympics probably need esports more than esports needs the Olympics. Um, look, I think the Olympics has a certain number of constraints in terms of, you know, what it deems to be sports means that um, it's quite constrained on what it can do. So I think, you know, if you look at the IOC and you look at all the comms coming out of there, they want to engage with the younger audience and they recognize that the way people are doing things is changing. Um, but, but actually what they're doing doesn't add up to that. So, you know, I've got great respect for what Zwift do in cycling and there's other, you know, kind of things, but you can call that an esports. Absolutely. I get why people do, but it's not the, it's not you know, the same kind of esport as League of Legends or CSGO or Rocket League is in terms of scale of audience or type of audience. So just having a sport that is online doesn't mean you're going to attract young people. So in answer to your question, I think um, I think there are benefits certainly for esports and certain esports titles to be part of the Olympics. It is a huge global media event with tremendous brand prestige. And I think it could certainly introduce esports to new audiences and provide a whole raft of revenue opportunities. Um, but it needs to be done in the right way for esports. And equally, I think there's huge opportunities for the IOC to bring it in and then reach new audience. I just don't think that the parameters for which that can happen exist, whereby the solution you get out make it sense for either party to do. Now, did you, were, did I see that right? Were you working with um, Esports Scotland on the Commonwealth Games? Correct, yeah. How did that work out for you? What were you doing there and how did that work out for you? <clears throat> so very simply, so um, the Commonwealth Games had um, an exhibition event whereby they had esports running alongside. Um, so they were medal events, but not official medal events, if you like. Um, and they, again, are just testing the water. Our role there was very simple. Um, esports Scotland were responsible for, you know, finding the players that were going to represent Scotland and then managing and coaching them through the championships. Um, the role we took on was 
how you know how do they monetize the as a, you know um, the mechanism by which they recruited potential representative you know representatives of Team Scotland and indeed the Scottish team? How do they monetize that? Because again, when you're competing in the Commonwealth Games, you're under quite strict commercial um, restrictions. You can't have your own sponsors that usurp the Commonwealth Games sponsors. But you can in the recruitment of those people. So you can't, if you like, once you're competing in the Games, but to get, you know, the road to gold, as they called it, and the way to get there, you could. So that was the role we took was, look, this is a home Commonwealth Games who knows, it might be a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Wouldn't you, you know, this was particularly prevalent for brands that are based in Scotland or have Scotland as part of their brand identity. We were like, you know, would you like to be part of this and, and attract, you know, kind of lend yourself and be better seen by that younger Scottish audience by supporting this emerging, you what, know, opportunity? What was, the, what was the response then? We're, so um, we're, we're so, interested because of the uniqueness and hey, this is a a, a, a Commonwealth event. Yeah, so really they brought on board. Um, I think it was Iron Brew, and I'm trying to think. I think there was one other partner whose name now escapes me. Um, but yeah, essentially they got involved because they were like we you know Scottish being Scottish you know that national kind of pride is an important part of our brand um and here's a great way that we can you know signal that that's important to a particular audience you're you're in the, you're in uh, you're not in Scotland are you I'm not in Scotland no but that you know that doesn't that doesn't mean you you can't help them um you know understand where value is and actually our our work with eSports Scotland is ongoing and the conversation you and I just had about timing is one that only last week um, eSports Scotland and I had, you know, they've got a number of opportunities coming up in the near term. Um, but actually where we're looking to do work with them is, is more their strategic planning going forward on, you know, how do they build better foundations and a more investable proposition for the long term for next year's budgets rather than the immediate needs. Yeah, because it must be interesting in a way because of a different culture in, let's say, Ireland versus Scotland versus England. I mean, to, certain, uh, to a degree, subtleties that, that say someone coming in from the U.S., we would normally, you know, we wouldn't necessarily pick up on right away. Sure. But if you think about it, all I'm doing is asking, I mean, I'm asking them questions, right? A lot, all I'm yes. doing is stru- I'm ask, I'm structuring my question set to learn about okay, who are you as an entity? Who's your audience? How are you engaging? What are the you know potential assets you've got available? All of they are are constructs. It doesn't matter that I'm not Scottish. I'm essentially doing detective work to understand where they've got value. And then I'm helping them put that together in a valuable way. Now, all I'm doing, again, is often being an outsider is better because I ask some questions they don't think about themselves. They may not think about being Scottish is actually something that is a saleable proposition because everybody that they're sat next to is Scottish and all the people they're talking to is Scottish. So they wouldn't think that actually being Scottish is a sales thing. Whereas for me, I'm like, but hold on, you know, I Brew the drinks brand is well known as being Scottish or Tenants Lager or whatever. They're a key part of their brand DNA. So why don't we leverage that and say, look, here's a great way for you to illustrate that. Do you think the, uh, do you think the, uh, the experiment with the Commonwealth Games was successful? The East um, side of it? To be honest, I'm not the right person to ask about that. 
Um, I wasn't close enough to the actual operations to know um, whether it's successful or not. Certainly, Esports Scotland felt it was successful. And certainly, given our conversation today around commercials, it's opened up a number of commercial discussions for them. Um, and like we've just talked about with the Olympics, the halo effect of and being associated with a recognised global sporting event has has brought um, certain awareness and I think trust. We I was going to mention the point when we were talking about it earlier when you talked about inviting people along to events. When it comes to people making investments, whether it's into you personally or, or monetary investments, trust is a real hygiene factor. So if you can build a relationship with somebody and get to know them, and that comes before you approaching them, asking them for money, that has a huge impact on the likely success of whether you get that investment. So them being associated with you know, the Commonwealth Games has given them way more trust when it goes to new business discussions. They're like, oh, right, well, if you're doing stuff with the Commonwealth Games, you must be quite trustworthy. Therefore, I'm going to trust you more with my money and trust you with my brand association. Yes, yes. And the other thing, one of the things that I also always tell people is to um, figure out who you can make a hero in the organization because you don't necessarily always want to talk to the top person. You want to talk to the marketing manager or the advertising manager. And, and get to that because when you're talking about, you know, working with eSports Scotland, working with different organizations and getting, building up a personal relationship that you can work with down the road, it's like you, you want that, you probably want that relationship to be someone at a level that has, you know, can make a difference, but also that you can feed ammunition to that you can make them a hero within the organization. Absolutely. And you know what? I think, again, if you look at human nature, People are more scared of failure. Um, and if something goes wrong, you know, the consequences of that, then they are the incentive of something going right. So, you know, there's the old adage, nobody ever got sacked for hiring IBM. And that's because, you know, that comes from that natural human reaction where, you know, kind of risk uh, and that fear is far more overwhelming to people than the opportunity. So I think to start with, you need to provide people with reassurance. But equally, as you say, there are other ambitious people that are in decision-making uh, or influencing positions where if you give them a chance to offer up something different and innovative that could produce real results and to your point make them a hero they're interested in their own career as much as they're interested in how well their brand does so you need to think about human aspects as well as the corporate aspect yes yes hey you know i i need to wrap up here because i don't want to take your whole whole time here but um your whole day but um i really appreciate you taking the time here to talk to us. I, one of the things i like when when reginald was able to schedule you is just your 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 long background in sponsorship and i knew that it could be a good, good conversation where's the best people to find you online um so best place to find me online i'm on uh, linkedin um you know mouth mins i've got quite a unique name so it's pretty easy um to find me on there um strive sponsorship.com as you said earlier is our website and at strive says um on twitter great great so Everyone listening, thanks for listening. This is the Gamers Change Lives podcast, season two. Follow the money, play games, create jobs, change lives. Thanks, Mouth. You're welcome. Thanks for having me, Tom. You've just heard the Gamers Change Lives podcast. 
If you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment and leave a review. And if you haven't subscribed, do so right now so that you can stay up to date with episodes as soon as they're uploaded. And so you can hit the ground running on changing your esports adventure forever. You can also visit us at GamersChangeLivesPodcast.com. Play games, create jobs, change lives. Thanks for listening.